So in today's show, we're going to talk about forensic archaeologists, many, many ways that you can get trained and fulfill your ABMDI credits, an update for the Kickstarter campaign supporters, and great news about Death Investigator Magazine. Three six one seven response report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to you. The best people in the world, those who listen to Coroner Talk and those in the death investigation community. Today, we have a great, great show planned for you. We're going to talk about forensic archaeology. We're going to, I'm going to tell you what that's like. I'm going to tell you how you can be involved in some forensic archaeology and what you need to think about when you're out on the scene. Now, last episode, we talked about forensic anthropology, and there's archaeology in that as well, of course. And then we had a class last week where we actually did some digging and some recoveries and things that we had pre-set up months ago and, and ran our students through some real scenarios. Well, today I want to talk about the archaeology side of it and what you need to know as an investigator when you're looking at certain areas and how do you determine what could or could not be a burial site. And then some things you need to think about when it comes to actually starting the dig. And, you know, what you don't know is you can be trained to do some of this digging and some of this recovery yourself to a point that maybe you get to a point where you want to bring in a forensic anthropologist if you have one. But many times you don't have one readily available. You have to do it yourself. And if you're going to do it yourself, you need to do it right. Or a lot of times it isn't worth doing at all. But before we get into that, I want to update you on the Death Investigator magazine. Now, if you are one of the Kickstarter supporters that launched this magazine in the beginning and you subscribed early for it, there's been some emails go out to you asking about certain courses and rewards that you won and things like that. But some of those surveys have not been filled out. There's been links sent out for the some of your free stuff and things. And a lot of those haven't been filled out or open. So you might want to check your spam folders or something because, or if you've got it, you're just not responding. Here's the problem. We're getting ready next week. Well, this is the end of July. So the first part of August, we're going to be sending you a link to get your subscription to the Death Investigator magazine, which you've already pre-subscribed to. If you're not checking your emails and opening them, then you're not going to know where the link is. And then you're going to get mad at me thinking I didn't send it. So search around and find the stuff from Kickstarter and make sure that you are familiar with where it's at so you can start getting the rewards that are coming to you and you can get your subscription. But let's say that you was not a pre-subscriber and that you are like, huh, what is this Death Investigator magazine? I must have been living in a rock for the last six months. I haven't heard of this. Well, crawl off underneath your rock and go to deathinvestigatormagazine.com. I know, that's pretty long. deathinvestigatormagazine.com. You can also go to cornertalk.com and click on magazine. That'll take you there. You can subscribe from there. Android and iOS, 
And you can, uh, your iPad, your tablet, your cell phones, any type of digital device like that, you will be able to download and read this magazine. And then it's, you can buy individual issue, you can buy subscription, and all kinds of things there. It is a fantastic resource for anybody in the death investigation or supporting roles. So if you've not subscribed yet, then certainly go to deathinvestigatormagazine.com and subscribe today. Okay, one last thing in the way of announcements. This has gotten a little bit confusing because there has been a lot of things change here in 2018. We're trying to get more streamlined. We're trying to provide you, the listener, and the students with the things that you're asking for. And so we have kind of taken everything we have with our with the Academy and with the podcast, and we have thrown it up in the air, and then we've sorted it out as it's fell. So here's how we are doing the education side now. You can go, there's a, there's a link to this in the show notes, but uh, ditacademy.org slash education. Now, you can also find that at Corner Talk. Go to uh, e-learning and things like that. But ditacademy.org forward slash education. And there you're going to find the three options to receive online training. Now, of course, classroom training is in these class schedule. But this gives you three options. There's individual online courses that you can take. All of everything is ABMDI approved for continuing education credit. There is also the membership option, which for $37 a month is the current fee. You get a new online course dumped into your dashboard every single month. Plus, you have access to a non-dynamic version of the Death Investigator magazine, which means it's a PDF version, so none of the links work. You can't click or watch videos, or you can't go anywhere other than just reading the text, but you still get the same magazine. It's just non-dynamic. You also get... A, discounts to vendors and different articles and resources that aren't available to anyone else. So this is a lot about having the monthly membership. Then, of course, there is the $695 Death Investigator Online Academy, the full medical legal Death Investigator Academy. That starts every other month. And with that, then, you can also set for the National Certification Exam. So Three ways to get online training, and we want to provide that in one simple area. So we've combined it all in one simple area, ditacademy.org slash education. Now, this fulfills all the requests that people have been asking for. You know, I want online training, but a la carte's expensive. Can I get something monthly? Can I afford it? Do I want the full academy? This is everything there and tells you the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of it. And you can decide what fits and works best for you. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right. Today I want to talk about forensic archaeology. Now, I don't want that to scare you. I want to talk about forensic, forensic archaeology and searching for clandestine and surface remains from your perspective, from the perspective of the death investigator, the police officer, not from a PhD. So, yeah, we do want to use PhD level people. We, we do want to use archaeologists and anthropologists when that is necessary. But as I said in the introduction, there are times when that's not possible. You don't have somebody available and you might be searching an area that you think could possibly 
have a clandestine grave, but it's not yet time to call for uh, the forensic anthropologist from the medical examiner's office, uh, maybe hours away from a university, because you just don't know for sure. And so there's a lot of things that you can teach yourself and learn on how to evaluate areas and how to evaluate uh, not only surface recovery, but also a possible clandestine grave so that you'll know who to call and when and when it's important, not just call every time someone gives a tip. You know, so a forensic anthropologist, forensic anthropology, of course, is a study of, well, anthropology of itself is a study of societies and cultures and things like that. Forensic is as it applies to the law. And we generally think of forensic anthropology as anthropology of the human skeletal system and how it applies to the law, giving us things like the best they can, height and race and male, female, things like that. They can also look at bones and tell us sometimes about injuries and and things. And so anthropology is great. Well, a discipline of anthropology is also forensic archaeology. Now, we know archaeology is simply, you know, the the digging or the the finding of items. Just think about historical archaeology, where they're digging up King Tut's grave and they're and they're digging up uh, ancient cities and ruins in their. That's archaeology. Forensic archaeology is the same thing, only it's looking uh, at things pertaining to the law. So sometimes you may have, let's say, a grave found or let's say a bone found that it may not have forensic value, which means it may be a family pet. It might be human, but it could either be a displaced cemetery, a forgotten cemetery, Quite honestly, there's been a lot of cases of medical waste ending up in fields and buried and things like that. So we find this couple of bones and it's human. Well, that's a big deal to us. But then we find out that it's actually caused from human waste disposal, uh, science research, hospital waste, things like that. Again, the anthropologist can help us with that. And then, of course, there's forensic taphonomy. And that is simply the study of what goes on after a person dies, how the how, what affects the bones and how the bones are, bones are affected throughout the decomposition process and the skeletization. Now, when it comes to forensic archaeology, they don't work in a vacuum any more than a forensic pathologist work in a vacuum. They have to have you as the investigator, the coroner, the police officer, the medical examiner investigator, all work with them. Now, True, they may be the one coming out and helping you with a, with a dig of a clandestine grave, but we're going to talk about that today, about how you can actually uh, maybe start the dig yourself, look for areas that could be a possible dig site, and what you need to do to better acquaint yourself with that process before you actually call an anthropologist or an archaeologist. Now, also, most forensic anthropologists will have a discipline of forensic archaeology, in most cases, that is part of their training. There's a lot of them to start out in archaeology, and then with the study of osteology, which is bones, they go more into forensic anthropology. But be sure whoever you're using to come out on your dig site, they have some archaeological training. Because if not, they're they're no better than you are, and, and you can do the same thing. You know, obviously, we don't want to just get a shovel and start digging. 
And I've seen that in a lot of departments around the country in my in my 30 years where we think we have a grave. So let's just grab a couple of shovels and some guys from the road district and we'll come out here and start digging. That is the absolute worst thing that you could do when it comes to a clandestine grave. But let's go back a little bit and let's start with some scenarios. Let's say, for instance, you have a tip that there is a person that's been missing from your county for a while and that they're buried out on this piece of property that that through investigation, you've learned that the possible suspect in this case would have had access to it in some way. So, and, and, and maybe none of that exists, but nonetheless, you have this idea that there is a buried body on this property. Well, the first thing you have to do, of course, is determine, is it possible that that the person could be buried here. And you've got, you've got several uh, possibilities. You've got a surface recovery, which is just a body laid out on the ground and bones are scattered everywhere. You've got obstructed, which means they are partially buried, partially on top. Maybe there's a fallen tree. There's somehow there's an obstruction or a building, things like that. And you have buried or your clandestine grave. Then you have the issues of how long it's been. So are you going to have soft tissue present or is it all skeleton? And depending on your environment and the time and the way they were buried and things like that, you still may have soft tissue. But you have to first evaluate your area. Now, here's what I want to point out. And you can't in an audio discussion like this, it's hard without being able to show pictures and actually get you out in the field. But think about it this way. The first thing you have to do is determine how big your area is going to be to search. That could be an acre. That could be 100 acres. Once you decide how big it is, then you need to look at the ground cover that you're searching. So let's just take a five-acre plot. Let's say it's five acres and there is a pond on that five acres. There's a lot of open field or open area and there's some wooded area. Each one of those is going to be searched differently. And so then you have to think, well, where do we want to search first? The field or the wooded area? Whichever area you're going to search, then you know, get, get an aerial photograph, go to the, the, the county records department and get how that land is laid out, things like that. Of course, you've got, got to get permission to search, whether to take a search warrant or permission from the owners, whatever, all that legal stuff. But now let's get to the point where you're actually searching. It's going to take a lot of people actually to search a land this big. So if you can get some people together, police academy students, fire departments, teenage Boy Scouts, eh, and that would be my last choice. But get some adults and put them in a line, put them in a circle, however you're going to search with, with, with pin flags. And you have to be the leader of this. You have to tell them how you want the search conducted. So are we going to go, we're going to go in a straight line through, you know, we're going to go from north to south, go in a straight line and keep it slow. Uh, when, you, when you find something, everybody stops, put a, put a flag in the ground. Because here's what you want to do. You want to go through this area and anything that looks interesting to these guys, they put a flag in the ground. Now, you have to give them some instructions. You're looking for anything that's possible, bone, clothing, Something that looks out of place, a shell casing, a cigarette butt, a, a shoe, anything. Just put a flag in the ground. An indentation in the ground, somewhere where the, the vegetation looks different than the rest of the area. Maybe you've got a hump, maybe you've got a dip, maybe you've got 
uh, a little combination of both. Maybe the grass is greener in this area than it is or vice versa. Uh, put a flag in the ground. You can always then come back and search those areas. And so we don't want to lose this evidence. So the line stops, put a flag in the ground. You may want to photograph that area, put a number there. Uh, all this kind of dictates on how big your area is. And then you keep going. Now, obviously, in a wooded area, something that's more dense with underbrush, you're going to have to be a lot slower. You may actually have to be on your hands and knees for some of it. And the line is going to have to remain a lot closer together because we can't see each other. But it's the same thing. You're looking for things of difference in the area. Now, in a show like this, I can't go into everything you need to look for. But obviously, I mentioned some of them. But in a, in a, in a wooded area... And we're, we're thinking this could be months. So in months, you have several seasons. But look for areas where maybe the leaf litter isn't as thick. Or maybe there's some, some underbrush area that's clearing. Well, there's underbrush everywhere except in this area. You know, maybe there is some greener grass or, or things. Maybe there's underbrush all around. But in this particular area, it seems like it's more grassy in this area because, of course, once ground gets tilled up and turned over, one of the first things that's going to grow is grass, underbrush, and, and thorny bush and things like that is going to come along later. So if you've got an area that's grassy, that could be something you want to look at. And you, you, but you want to familiarize yourself with what needs to be done. And I may say this several times throughout the conversation, but you need to find uh, some books on this subject and self-teach yourself. Read about this, watch videos on this, become an expert yourself in this. I'm not asking to be a PhD, but understand what you're looking for and what, and see pictures of what looks differently and read some real case scenarios of what has happened. So let's move through here and say we found some areas that look like, well... You know, it looks pretty good. We, we kind of want to look at this area thinking this could be a clandestine grave. And if it's a clandestine grave, then you're going to have to do some excavating there. So let's just kind of go back to the beginning here. You put out all your pin flags. You've got some areas that you've re-looked at. And there's a couple areas. Let's say there's one or two that you really want to look at. And you start evaluating and you think, okay, well, let's start on this one. This one looks the best. Uh, the size, the shape, the area. Uh, it just looks like it's more uh, possibly a, gr a grave, okay? Fits all the parameters. And size doesn't always matter because, you know, you don't have to get a six-foot by two-foot hole in the ground. It may be a lot smaller and someone crumpled somebody up in there rather than if the person was in full rigor, they probably would have had to dig a bigger hole because, you know, they it didn't go and break the rigor. Uh, if they're if they're not in rigor, let's say they're either out of rigor or they've only been dead a short time, person may dig a smaller hole and basically shove the person in there like in a fetal position or something. So you, you may be looking for, you know, an adult, but you've got a, a smaller area. This adult can't be in that hole. Yeah, he could be because he could be in there at an angle and in a fetal position and, and kind of clumped up. Uh, and that's not to say that someone might not have cut his legs off and threw the legs in on top of him. So you just don't know. Digging a hole is hard work. And so they're going to make it as fast and as shallow as possible. So we find this area. So you, what you want to do first is decide on the area that you want to clear. And by clearing it, I mean you need to clear all of the ground clutter. The leaf litter, uh, the grass, anything that's around this area and make it, you know, pretty good size. If you've got an area that you say, well, this looks like an indentation, 
you know, put a big area around that indentation and clear it off. And a lot of this is hands and knees. Now, you can use a, a plastic leaf rake for part of it, uh, you know, to clear out part of it. But you want to save that. You want to pick that up and say that is better if you can clear this off by hand. Put it in buckets, put a tarp out, dump it in a tarp, go through it in a little bit later. If In case there's something found, you want to look for other evidence on the ground. And then you start clearing out with a hand trowel and with snippers and things, and you start clearing out all the vegetation. Don't grab a little tree sapling and pull it up by the roots. Because when the roots come up out of the ground, you can disturb the bones underneath. You can tear clothing, things like that. Cut it off. Just cut it off of the ground with snippers. So when you're done, you're actually wanting a bare ground, nothing but dirt in your area. And you've done most of this by hand oh, with trowels and snippers and things like that. And then you grit it out. And, and gritting is important. You think, well, why do I want to take so much time to do that? You really need to put a grid work out. Uh, a lot of anth- anthropologists, archaeologists will use metric system, but whether it be metric or whether it be English me- uh, measuring system, you grid it out. Because you have to map this and you want to be able to know that in you know the section one or section four or wherever you found these items. So you'll want to kind of do all of that. And then once it's gridded, then you can start actually excavating what you consider to be half of that grid. So if you grid it to where the grave, what looks like the grave, is down the center, then you want to start excavating half. And doing that generally by hand trowels and small shovels by hand. You don't just get a big shovel in there and start digging. Because doing that is going to, of course, destroy any evidence you might have. And some of the things you're looking for as you're digging down, again, hand trials and and small shovels and things like that, all on your hands and knees, is you're wanting to look for soil differences. So you can pretty well, once you get down to bare ground and you start, it's very common that you can kind of see a grave outline. Now, it doesn't mean that there's there's necessarily a human there. Uh, Maybe it's a sinkhole. You know, maybe this just the ground collapsed underneath there a little bit. Maybe someone dug a hole and, and buried a cow in there uh, two years ago, three years ago. I'm not saying it's human, and I'm not even saying anything's actually buried there, but obviously you could tell there's, a, there's an area that's sunk in. Now, as you start pulling through this by hand, you will quickly tell if this ground looks like it's been disturbed. The dirt is maybe marbleized a little bit where you got some darker topsoil mixed in with some clay or some some deeper soil. And you can tell that the edges are a lot harder and packed in from centuries worth of dirt being there. Where this other area, it's just not so hard. It may be, you know, settled and rain might have packed it in some, but it's obviously a lot looser. And as you dig this out, you'll realize, well, we definitely have a disturbed ground here. We can tell not only visually, but also physically, we have some disturbed ground. And in that case, you have to decide, do you want to stop at that point? And one of two things, we've got several options. Do you want to stop at that point and bring in a cadaver dog or HRD dog and have them search the area? You know, maybe take some T-post rods or something and sticking the ground to open up some air vents to see if the dog can hit there. Maybe that's a good indication that something was there. Uh, you might want to go ahead and excavate further to see if you can find uh, clothing or a bone or something where then you want to stop and call an anthropologist or, or an archaeologist. 
<clears throat> maybe you just want to continue on and excavate the entire thing. And now when you excavate the entire thing, there's a lot you need to know as far as finding all the bones and looking, knowing what you're looking at. And if you're sifting dirt, you, you don't know, well, this, is this a rock? Is this a stick? Is this a bone? Keep it. Let somebody send it off and let somebody else tell you what it is. Uh, if you can't tell whether it's a rock or a bone, and the thing is, if you've never looked, sometimes small rocks and like carpal bones and things like that are, you know, they're pretty similar if they've been in the ground for a while until you clean them off and look at them and know what you're looking at. So just because you, uh, you know, if you don't know, then keep it. Uh, so, but then you have to make some decisions is based upon your training and experience, how far do you want to go down and continue excavating? But you've gotten to this point, then you've decided we have something. Let's shut this down and let's contact a forensic anthropologist, a forensic archaeologist, come out and do this dig. Now, if you have to wait a day or a few hours or something to get somebody out, they're coming for something, right? It's not like, well, we don't know. There could be something on this five acres. So now you know they're coming for something. But let's move on and talk about surface. So let's say we've, we've wrapped somebody in the blanket or not or whatever. We've, we've dug them out in the woods and just left them there. And now over time, the animals and the weather and things like that has moved body parts around. And someone has always a deer hunter. Deer hunters are great for finding bodies. So a deer hunter has found a bone or a skull or something, and we have to go to that area and we have to do a surface search. Now, this is going to be very similar in search method, meaning we, we need to mark and we need to know where was the last place that we knew this bone was at. So whoever found it needs to go back out and show us and tell us, okay, this is about where I found it right here. And so once we mark that and we flag that, then we can start spreading out from there and doing some search of the area for visual findings. Again, you put marker flags in the ground. Get some people together to search that area. Now, you might think, well, let's just search a few feet. This could be a quite an extensive area. You've got coyotes and raccoons and birds and things that'll start dragging off body parts and gnawing on them, and, and, it, and, and it can really change things. If you've had water come up in the area, it could have washed things away. Uh, so, and it, it may not even be a creek. It may be quite a ways from a creek, but it might be a lower-lying area. In the last couple of years, if you had a really, really big storm or a flood or where this bottom area could have filled up, and you can look at that sometimes in that area and see if there's underbrush or things that's kind of piled up against trees and it looks like maybe water had flowed through there at one point. If that's the case, you've got a bigger area. But you just have to start looking and start flagging. Now, once you get some areas flagged, then you go back to the, where the, the actual bone was found and you start removing ground cover. Again, you can do this with some plastic rakes, kind of, depending on how thick the cover is. But you got to be careful because you could very likely be raking up bone and then just getting rid of it. You can't do that. Anything that you collect off ground cover needs to be taken and put on tarps. And you need to assign somebody to going through that ground cover by hand and sifting it and looking for anything. Anything. Shell casing, cigarette butt, what could be a bone, uh, a little piece of jewelry. Who knows what could be laying on the ground there? And you continue to pull out your area and marking things, and, and you need to be mapping all of this. This is the other thing. Someone needs to be mapping this to where you've got an area divided out, gridded out, and where are things located based upon triangulation and measurements. You don't want to shortcut this because, again, when this goes to court, they're going to want to know that you didn't just go out there and start picking up bones. You actually excavated it correctly. 
So you clear all of this area out. So let's say you've got an area that you feel hey, you've gotten big enough based upon however the area is natural. you got a bluff on one side. That'll stop you. You know, let's say you've got other certain geographic features that actually help define this. And you may not. It may be just an open area of a thousand acres. But, but however you think you have found, then you have to start doing a little bit of hands and knees groundwork when it comes like we did with the clandestine grave. Because there are small carpal bones, uh, teeth, teeth, a lot of teeth will come out of the skull pretty quickly. Some will stay in. But teeth are very important when it comes to helping with identification. And you want to be able to find all the teeth that you can. And so that means you're going to have to start taking off some surface dirt, at least a few inches. Because common erosion, people walking through there, you yourself may have walked across there and pushed a tooth into the ground. Uh, small bones, things like that. You can take some of the uh, small bones in the hand and you may have stepped on some of them or someone may have over time, even an animal, a deer walked by and stepped on some of them. But by finding them, you find that they're fractured. Well, that may tell us something about the, the way the person died or the last few moments before they died if their hand is fractured. So all of that stuff needs to be found. And that's going to mean taking off the first few inches of dirt by hand and sifting through it. And we need to know that we have all the bones. Now, there are, there are approximately 206 bones in the human body. And I say approximately because there are some people that's had some taken out. Some people are born with more bones. Some are born with less bones. There are some weird things go on in the body. Uh, but for the most part, it's 206 bones. Now, you're probably not going to find 206 bones. Uh, again, you're talking about carpals, flangy bones. You're talking about a lot of little teeny tiny bones. However... You can certainly look to find the big bones and find as many little bones as you can. The more bones you find, the better. There's been a lot of stories where people have come out on a surface recovery, found all the bones there was to find, and forensic anthropologists and archaeologists went out there and, and gritted it off and did it right, and they found most all the rest of the bones. Now, you're going to have things missing when you've got like maybe a coyote, you know, maybe chewing on an arm or something and ended up dragging the arm off and back to its den or something like that and, and eating on the bones. And, and so you might not find them all. So that is that is true. But you need to do every effort you can to find them. Look for areas that, that has like uh, a den in the cave or maybe a, a hole in the ground. And don't be sticking your hand in there, but take a flashlight and look in there. See if you can see possibly there could be a bone in there or something if that's the case. Well, then we go further and we start excavating that area. Uh, but when it comes to surface, you want to find everything you can in that area. No matter how big or little it is, you don't want to leave stuff out there. And in obstructed areas is the same thing. You've got something maybe partially buried. Maybe someone buried a body, but not very deep, and they put a little dirt on it, and they threw some, some brush on it. But then over time, it eroded, and animals got to it and drug it off. And, and so you've got some buried, some on surface. You may have had a tree fall and covering part of it and so or you know that's not even to mention that you might have a building collapse i'm just talking about something in the woods but but all these things are obstructed again you got to follow the same type of principles now there's some things that also to think about this ground penetrating radar fantastic resource but it's not like it is on tv they're not going to run the gpr across the ground and all of a sudden up comes the picture of a skeleton laid in perfect form in the bottom of the grave it just doesn't happen like that. Look up some pictures of what GPR results look like. It is looking for ground disturbances. 
loose versus hard, anything that reflects the, the, the sound waves, the, the radio waves, things like that, you want to look, you know, well, you, you have to be able to read that. All right. So that's fine. If someone in your area has that and can do that, that is fantastic. And that will give you some ideas. But a lot of times it's inconclusive. If there's tree roots around, if someone has uh, maybe put, uh, I, I know of a case where someone, they buried a body and they took some bags of quick concrete and they dumped over the body and, you know, a little bit of water on that, mixed it up, you know, to put a kind of a concrete seal over them, so to speak. And then, threw the dirt back in on top of them. Well, in that case, there wasn't a lot of collapse because the concrete kind of got hard. And it was going to be a lot different for a ground-penetrating radar because they're going to come up with this hard surface. So it, you can't always, you know, you think of a fish finder for dirt. That's kind of what you're looking at. It, not everything really sees the way uh, uh, you would see it on TV. So, But you can look in, in that in that way as well. You know, searching areas with drones. If you're if you're going to search an area, a big area, you know, some wooded area. If it's very thick, you're not going to really see the ground. But maybe you can search for, with drones and see, you know, this area over here. I see some things I want to go look at, or this looks disturbed, or I see a path coming in and out of the of the road. Maybe someone took that easy access type stuff. Uh, maybe the body hasn't been gone very long. Maybe you're searching an area that isn't years old. It might just be weeks old. And a drone can help that because as you fly over, you can see maybe there's tire tracks going off in the woods. Maybe you can see a blanket or a tarp laying on the ground or or something where that will narrow your search. And, of course, with ground uh, surface recovery, you likely will have some entomology evidence, some bugs. The fresher it is, the more maggots you'll have. Then, of course, centipedes and beetles and spiders, and then, of course, by the time you come down to just pure skeleton, uh, the entomology part is going to be pretty well gone. But do you have some entomology evidence? Well, then you've got to know how to collect that and uh, and or get somebody out there to collect that. So one of the purposes I wanted to, with this discussion, I wanted to bring to your attention is I don't want you to be afraid of doing some ground search, surface and maybe even some clandestine grave search, on some of these cases, if you if you have access to a forensic anthropologist who has some archaeology experience and they will come out with you on every suspicious call, that's golden. That's fantastic. I'm not suggesting you leave them at the office. But in most cases, it's not that way. You have somebody available. Uh, it may cost a little bit of money. It may be a little bit of time. Uh, and it isn't as easy to get them out. So in that case... I suggest that you learn this. Now, here's some things you can do. There's courses all over the country. I know there's a big one in Arizona every year, Los Angeles, Florida. Uh, if you if you really have the money to spend, you can go to what we know as a body farm in Tennessee. Uh, they've got a lot of classes there. They're expensive, but they're good. And then, of course, we've got ours here in Missouri that we teach every year on uh, surface and, bo- and buried body recovery. But so they're all over the country. Find you these courses and go to these courses and get some hands-on experience in locating these graves and surface recovery, things like that. Make you an expert? Not at all. But it certainly gives you an understanding of how it works. Then, along with that, buy a book or two. You know, it's your responsibility to learn. Us as investigators, our departments, our agencies should be training us, but not always do they have the ability with the time and the money to do that. So if you want to be good at your job, sometimes you have to self-teach. 
there are some good books out there on understanding human versus animal bones. If a bone is found in the woods and the hunter brings it to town, uh, can you look at it and say if it's human or not? You know, if if you have some books with some examples and you can readily say it's not human, then at least you know it's not human. If you don't know, then you can move on from there. Another side note, most of these forensic anthropologists that you deal with, and they may be hours away, but a lot of them are willing to take a phone call or a text message. So you have this bone and you call the guy up and say, hey, look, I got this bone. Not sure what it is. Are you willing to take a look at it? Sure he will. So take some pictures with your phone and with and without scale. Okay, it's really important to have scale in there because a bone can look bigger than it is without scale. So get you some photographic scales and some rulers, things like that. Put in there. Take every angle of that bone imaginable. You may take 15 or 20 pictures of one bone. I don't know. Text it to him. Send it to him. And he will be able to look at that and tell you human or non-human. He may say, look, I don't know what it is, but it ain't human. So that's all you care about, right? You don't care if it's a dog, a horse, but you just need to know that it's not human. You can do that through email and text messages and get an answer within minutes. So problem solved at that point. So you keep those people on speed dial. But get to learning some of this yourself. What do human bones look like? The bigger bones are easier to tell than the smaller bones sometimes. The... uh, the way the graves are bare, the way the graves are constructed, the way people bury people, uh, what does the ground look like, surface recovery, all this can be self-taught. Again, I'm not saying that you're an expert, and I'm not saying that you're going to replace the forensic archaeologist and the forensic anthropologist. What I am saying is, you're going to be able to go out into an area and search an area and say, "Yes, we need more help," or "No, I don't see anything here that tells me that we need to call an anthropologist." Now, you can call them on the phone, talk to them, figure some things out, but you don't have to bring them down if you have a good understanding of what to look for. Saves time, saves money, and makes you a better investigator. There's a lot of things out there you can do along those lines to be self-taught. So my challenge to you through this is to consider this whole field of forensic anthropology, forensic archaeology as a area of interest at least. As a hobby, let's say, an area of interest, start getting your collection of bones, uh, some animal bones. Uh, human bones are harder to get, but you can get them. Get some animal bones. What, what's big in your area? Deer? Dog? Uh, you know, are you in an area where there's a lot of elk? Maybe get an elk bone or two? Because what's going to happen is someone's going to come to your office. They found this bone. They police call you, whatever. If you've got a collection of bones that are common in your area, then you can look at these bones and say, oh, yeah, here, here's, you know, here's some of the most common bones they're going to find. And like they'll mostly find the bigger bones, you know, the femurs, the ribs, uh, you know, parts of the spine, uh, different areas of the spine. And the skulls are pretty easy to, to realize they're not human. But get you some of these bones and mark them so that you can tell the difference. If you can't tell the difference, you can compare them, is what I'm saying. Some of the most common ones anyway. Uh, and so get to familiar with that. That will go a long way to a speeding up some of these some of these cases and figuring out what you're looking for. Okay, and the last thing I want to talk about on recovery is water. Now, water is a whole different animal, and it's harder to map out, it's harder to excavate, and it takes specialized people to go down and do a water recovery. There are many groups out there. Uh, there are divers that are recovery divers, and then there are divers that are meant for uh, forensically looking at crime scenes underwater. 
if you can drain it, if it's a pond or a small lake or something that you can drain, then drain it. Now, you know, you're, you've got a thought that maybe someone might be in there. Draining is going to be kind of tough. You might have to drag it, uh, even send some divers down. But if you get to where you do have a body or two down there, then you may have to drain the pond. Draining the pond and working through a muddy mess is better doing it that way than actually doing a recovery strictly underwater. Because underwater, you know, you're down there for so long, it's hard to see. You're doing it by feel. It's, it's bad. So if you can drain it, drain it. But it takes specialized skills to do those things. And then you just excavate it as you would normally. And, of course, you're going to do all, when you do the sifting, you're probably going to do more water sifting because it's muddy and silty and things like that. Uh, but that that can be done. So water recovery does make it harder, but obviously not impossible. We do it every day. So find ways to learn, find ways to be better. And that's what, you know, that's what this podcast is all about. You know, folks, it, it's about making you a better investigator. Stop shying away from things you don't understand. Stop shying away from things you don't know. I'm not asking you again to, to, to be a toxicologist, to be a pathologist, to be an archaeologist I'm, or an entomologist. But, but even on entomology, I'm not asking you to be an entomologist, but by golly, you can learn how to collect maggots and collect a few flies and preserve them correctly. You can do that on field level and send those in and have uh, the, the experts tell you what you have and some time of death uh, and some PMIs and things like that. Stop shying away from this stuff. You can learn it and be a better investigator, not only for yourself, but for your future and for your agency, because you've self-taught. Take some schools, take some classes online, read some books, and become a better investigator. Well, thank you for letting me meander on today talking about this topic. This is a topic that has been, you know, very on time for me here lately because I, we've been teaching on it. I've, I've helped with some grave recoveries, and so it's something that is kind of forefront, top of mind here in the last couple of months. And so I realized by doing that, I'm talking to investigators and people coming out to these classes and stuff that has always been afraid to put a trowel on the ground. And so I, I, I kind of realized, you know, we need to talk about this more. We need, we need to start getting people educated on how to, how to do things and how to help. So thank you again for tuning in this week. I appreciate everything that you do for, for our community and our society of death investigators. Uh, if you need training in some way, certainly reach out to me. Uh, if you need help in a, in, a, in a dig site or some questions or anything like that, you know, give me a call. I'll be glad to help you over the phone the best I can. I am not an anthropologist. Don't send me pictures of bones and ask me if it's human or animal because I can't tell you that. That's not true. Very likely, I would be able to tell you that, but I'm not your expert. Get an anthropologist for that. Um, but but I will help you in other areas. If you're close enough to Missouri and want me to come out and help you with a dig, I'll come out and help you with a dig. Just give me a call. If you need training, we can do training virtually. We can do training live, everything you need. Again, myself and the team that I've surrounded myself with has one purpose, and that is to help you be a better investigator in every way we can, whether it be the podcast, the magazine, online training, classroom training, live scenarios, we want to help you be a better investigator. And to that end, we have now purchased a house where we are developing it into a crime scene house. So when you come take classes at our academy, a part of those classes, many of those classes anyway, will have a practical component and it will be in a house that is set as a mock crime scene. So I, you know, I don't believe in total teaching off a of PowerPoint. I want to get out into the mud and the blood and the dirt and the house and actually process crime scenes. 
So we're one of the only few in the country that actually has a crime scene house uh, that is being developed now. is You know, it's not open today as this, this comes out live, but it will be open within a couple of weeks uh, and will be part of our ongoing training. So we've got a lot of training coming up, a lot of things we can do to help you. Just reach out and ask whatever you need. So again, be a blessing. Find a way to bless somebody. Uh, you know, being a blessing to somebody brings so much more blessing in your life. And above all, everyone, above all, be safe. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSBN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.